As we continue our studies in Gospel of John, we're in chapter 7. And chapter 7 is the beginning point of the intensifying opposition and conflict. And there's a backdrop for that. Chapter 6 is the longest chapter. Remember, it started with Jesus' wonderful miracle that he... <clears throat> saw the crowd and felt the compassion and to, to this crowd who's been journeying with him and hungry, he not only provided the physical food for 5,000 men, including men, women and children, close to 20,000. And Jesus was at the peak of his popularity, rock star popularity. And then strangely enough, he would not only slip away from the crowd who wanted that kind of political king, but at the same time, when they approached him again at the other side of Lake and Sea of Galilee, his teachings became hard sayings, very offensive sayings. So remember that... Verse 71, as it ends, chapter ends, from 5,000 men and everybody left except 12 disciples, 12 men. And among 12 men, one of them, he points out, is a devil, pointing to, referring to Judas Iscariot, who will deny Jesus, betray him. So chapter 7, verse 1, starts with this phrase, after this. After this, what? After this kind of uh, roller coaster, uh, you know, popularity, and then his, uh, his followers are dwindled down, and his popular, popularity waned, and then he's kind of, his turf, in a way, the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, it was noticeably different. That's where we pick up today's text. And verses 1 through 24, there are four groups of people, seemingly very different. And it is the same thing about what they consider about Jesus some people sounded really positive, even well-meaning. Some people are hostile. Some people are just very cynical. But there is a common factor among these four groups of people in this story. Let's begin with the first group of people is Jesus' brothers. And obviously, Jesus' brother meaning the, you know, these are the younger brothers uh, from Mary and Joseph. Uh, typically, we would call it because of his incarnation, Virgin Mary, birth. That These are half-brothers, basically. But they sounded really enthusiastic. They were not saying, Jesus, you're, you're 
uh, you're phony. Your, your miracle's not real. Actually, Jesus, Jesus, you, what you're doing is wonderful. But it's kind of bad because this is a country town. If you really want to make people know what your message is, you got to do these miracles in the big town. Go to Judea. When they mentioned Judea, it's primarily Jerusalem. Jerusalem was religious epicenter. Everyone who's serious about following God would gather three times a week, three times a year, the big feast. And the big feast is, feast is coming, feast of tabernacle, or the same, also known as uh, feast of booths. Once you go there, urge him. So that's the first cr- crowd. They, they meant well and sounded really enthusiastic. The second group is the, the cynical Jews. The, the Jews who had such a negative uh, view and opinions. He's a deceiver. Uh, they were most likely siding with the Jewish religious authorities in Judea because they couldn't stand him. Um, but among that crowd, the mixed crowd, there was a positive Jews, I would call it. Uh, they had a positive views. He's a good man. And they had opinions about Jesus. And they said, just, you know, Proof in the pudding. He, he seems to be doing really good things. But they were yet afraid to make their position publicly. Um, the final group of people is the hostile Jewish authorities. These are people who are angry. Because they, these religious authorities had... Uh, power over not only the temple practice, but in Jerusalem, in the religious activities, oversaw even the political activities. So these are the powerful high priests and Pharisees and Sadducees and people who are scribes and teachers. And they accuse Jesus with murderous rage. They couldn't stand him. The question is why? Because Jesus' teaching was authoritative. We'll look into that even more. And then they were threatened by his miracles, his followings, and his radical teaching. He did all that, and it really bothered them even more. Jesus didn't have Training, formal training, rabbinical school training. And it was quite uh, well received. In order for you to be a teacher, you need to be backed by all these rabbis. And your teaching has to be quoted. It's almost like in, in modern day uh, universities, you know, when you when you publish, you don't write your own thoughts, but so and so said this, and so and so backed up, and there is a discussion on this. 
That was the legitimate teaching style. And Jesus basically, thus I say, or the God says, or the Lord says, his authority came directly from God. He speaks on behalf of God. My words are not my words, but from my Father. I do not say anything unless God the Father gives me. So now, I ask you this. If there is a Jedi Master, spiritual sense, John is the Jedi Master. When I glanced over these 24 verses, oh, it's a simple story. But the more I read and over and over, the more I know the background, the more I intricacies of this tension and conflicts, there is an intention of the writer. John, the author of this gospel, is showing us four different kinds of unbelief. There are various, basically the common factor, every single one of them. Even though their color looks different, even though their style is different, unbelief was the common factor. And this is so close to our generation as well. Because if you think about the denominational difference, or even non-denominational churches or inter independent churches, there are so many colors of spirituality and different people. And I think Jesus' concern, what he's trying to do through this chapter is very relevant to us. Why is he intensifying his teaching to a point it sounded too offensive to these religious people? The purpose is very clear. Genuine faith. It's okay for you to just take side, one side or the other, rather than being deceived by your, your own self. You think you have faith. That's a danger. So Jesus is exposing these root causes of different kinds of unbelief. So let's begin with that question. What root causes does this passage reveal so that we become vigilant about our own faith as well? Here's the first one. The first root cause of unbelief in this passage, is man-centered mindset. The unbelief of Jesus' brothers was rooted in the worldly mindset which collided with Jesus' God-centered mindset. The reason why people are not believing, the reason for unbelief, even nowadays, is the paradigm, the center. And last week we, we talked about that 
having that autonomy, you really can't follow Jesus. You need to replace that autonomy with lordship of Jesus Christ. In that similar, in that sense, but when you think about uh, root causes, there are three different kinds of root causes, but I'm going to be fr- upfront with you. The root is one. The world. The worldliness is the root of unbelief. Why is that? Because what, what Jesus is bringing, uh, God's design, God's uh, agenda, God's purpose, and God's plan is directly opposed to what the worldly agenda and worldly paradigm, worldly principles or worldly mode of operations. We'll see that in verse 1 through 9, maybe 1 through 10. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, do these miracles, show yourself to the world. For not even your, his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to him, said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going, to, going up to, the, to it, this fe- feast. For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus' brothers didn't have a doubt. They actually believed Jesus' ability of doing these miracles. And the question is why? They meant well, right? This this is typically pragmatic principle. Like if you're somewhere in south in you know small town of uh, Texas. Oh, you want to be a singer? Or you want to be an entertainer? You want to be an actor, actress? You got to go to the big town. What are you doing here? Only 50 people around this town. You got to go to Hollywood. Or you got to go to New York. That's the concept, concept of that. And then basically saying, you have potential. You got to show your potential to people. But John clarifies in verse 5, 
They are saying this because of unbelief. So this is an undercurrent thing. When you think about what's going on, is that Jesus is basically saying, world, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. The question is simple. Why is this unbelief is rooted in worldliness? And what does Jesus mean by world cannot hate you? You know why? Because they belong to the world. They were one of the worlds. And the world will welcome in full embrace and you know, in agreement. But Jesus' values and Jesus' agenda was completely different. The countercultural thing. Because God designed what he originally designed, man drifted away. And then instead of God-centered view of the world and view of life, view of heart, and it became man-centered perspective, man-centered view, and man-centered value, more frankly speaking and personally, self-centered view. Me-centered view. The less you think that all the world is really bad. John used this word. The Greek word is cosmos. It is, word, it is the word that used in two different ways. One is very positive way. And the other one is very negative way. Same word in the context. But because of Jesus' identity, true identity, is his main theme, so that people may believe. In the, the majority of his context of Gospel of John, the world is in a bad context. But let's compare it really quickly. The famous John 3.16 verse, this is a positive cosmos. For God so loved the world that he gave his own, only son that who's, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Of course, this is the reason for Jesus' death. The reason for Christmas. So that's why context is important. Same John in his letter to the early church, and First John, chapter two, verse fifteen to seventeen. This is very different connotation. To not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its, its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This gave us enough direction. You see, the people and the nature and the, it, the world in which we live is beautiful good things. 
But what John's referring to in a bad connotation of the world is a worldly system under Satan's dominion, the desires of flesh, the selfish desires, and the pride, and all those things come up. And the systems that we, in which we live is typically, the philosophical word would be secular humor, humanism. In the universe, there is no supernatural. There is no such a thing as a supreme being who is also consistently always right, true. And therefore, everything is relevant. And how do you know the truth? By human five senses. The way you observe, the way you feel, the way you reason, all those things. And therefore, in the center of universe, I am. The man, the human being is the center. And therefore, when human being devoids the central creator, Lord, and sustainer of this universe, and we become small God, and that's the, the fallen world. And even in, in our country, we're living in that kind of demonic, worldly system that we ought to be very cautious about. The countercultural mindset, the crossway is stating as a, one of our core values and vision is because of that. I want to dwell upon this just a little more, lest we think that worldliness is just about length of hair and the crazy fashionable things and going to the trend and listening to certain type of music, the superficial things. But at the center of it, there is this ego and there is this pride of men is capable like brave new world. Don't get me wrong if you like the Disney movies and lovers of Disney World. I, I, I'm happy when I go to Disneyland as well. They do things well. But the message and value there, believe in yourself. The Bible says, oh, believe in the Lord Jesus. Your, your flesh, the flesh natural tendency is you're going to be led astray from God if you autonomously believe in yourself. And I think what's going on in educational system, what's going on in a political system, what's going on in a you know economical system, all that is going on if we really look through the eyes of Jesus' value, or let's say this God-centered mindset, it's radically, radically different. Another way of putting it is this. If you truly want to follow Jesus with genuine faith in the middle of this kind of world, 
The vigilance is necessary. Otherwise, the current is flowing like a gigantic river. And if you, if you are not watchful, you're swept away. We are swept away. And even facing Christmas, how will we receive the Advent season, celebrate Christmas, is determined by the worldly mindset or God-centered mindset. How we use money, how we parent, how we do our church. The secular worldliness has sneaked into the culture of so many churches in America. We're not exempt unless we continually become vigilant and finding the wisdom and guidance and prudence to choose the true faith. And otherwise, it's kind of a very phony faith that we, we, we will be led by, misled by in this day and age. There's another thing. Jesus says, my time has not come yet, but your time is always there. And another translation, your time, my time is not right time, but right time for you is always there. What is he talking about? And then Jesus saying, because my time has not come, fully come, you go, I'm not going. And after that, he goes. Is he contradicting himself? The word that, he, uh, the Greek word is helpful, is kairos. There's another Greek word for time, is chronos. Chronological, so it's a literal segment of times versus kairos is the moment or timing. Obviously, in the larger context of Jesus, whenever he mentions time, my time has not come, is the ultimate crucifixion and being glorified by God by through resurrection. But in this context, is more sensitive of a God's agenda because his ultimate time has not come. Right now, it's not the right timing, meaning I am not going to go publicly like you are urging me. The way I'm going to go is I'm going to go very privately. And then when I come out publicly, it's not the miracles. He comes out with teaching again. So you see the difference between the two? There is God-centered mindset, Jesus. And there is a seemingly well-supporting and well-meaning brothers. And maybe hidden agenda is that, well, if our brother gets really popular and he gets a lot of wealth and a lot of 
political power, then we get to ride in. Jesus was sensitive to the God's agenda. So, as I mentioned, that one word, if I have to choose, of the root of unbelief is worldliness, uh, which has a three different kinds of expressions. The first one is man-centered mindset, the first cause of unbelief, root cause. Second root cause is fear of men. Because of worldly mindset, because of worldliness, the unbelief of both murmuring Jews, the mixed crowd, was rooted in the fear or praise of men rather than fear of the Lord. Let's pick up from verse 10 again. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much murdering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You know, religious authorities, Jewish religious authorities, were so enraged and that Jesus became so offensive and, and controversial, they forbidden public discussion about Jesus. This is what's going on. So there's a two different kinds of in private and behind the closed door. When no authorities are around, they were saying, he's a good man. And the other one is saying, no, he's peop- they're, they're getting people astray from the truth, siding with you know, the religious authorities. They look like a two different group of people. But if we go to the root again, Same unbelief, two different expressions. Why is that? Because the mental assent, in other words, agreeing mentally what Jesus is doing, who Jesus is even, is believism. This is what's going on in our, in our world these days. Easy believism. Just believe Jesus is died on the cross and you, you, that you could go to heaven if you believe in I, I believe. But it's in just mental consent of the positive things what Jesus is. But true faith involves heart change. Because in, in autonomy means that you are not your own Lord, your yourself and center anymore. So no one really 
can see what's going on inside of our heart. What is a telltale sign? And in this passage, it becomes so clear, which is very, very relevant, applicable to our own world as well. A clear telltale sign of a heart change is whether one can declare his or her allegiance to Jesus as Lord publicly, despite its apparent cost. Um, I've seen and heard over and over some of the people, uh, like public figures, especially politicians, that, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, I really love the scripture. I pray. Could you talk about your faith a little more? When was the last time you really repented? My faith is private. I will never expose my private. And I will not invade somebody else's private life. But I think Jesus is a cool man. I mean, that might be the extreme example. But there is a time that you are at the fork of the road whether you could confess your faith publicly, despite your introverted personality, despite your fear of how your boss or your colleagues might think of you, there will be a moment that you need to stand with Jesus and for Jesus. If you cannot do that, if there is no way you could do this, your faith is not true. This passage is saying. Yes, even the genuine uh, people who have a faith might struggle, and there is a reality of pressure and persecution is really there. But we ought to face this straight. Is my faith too private? And this reminds me of an illustration that I heard even when I was young. I think it was in my teenage years, I heard this illustration from the pastor. And that, that church, the majority of them escaped from North Korea. And then everything that they're telling is more experiential story rather than some book, illustration book somewhere. So I know it's true. During Korean War, the communists came into barging into this small town church. And the communists hated Christian faith. And then one of the communist soldiers, captain, said, threw down the Jesus picture on the, on the floor. Now, one by one, you will walk on, the, on this picture of Jesus. You spit at him, or you step on him, and then you will live. You will go that side. 
if you do not, will execute you. What will be your choice? Obviously, threatening voice, and they just came from battle. They, the soldiers are rough. Anything can happen. Chaos was happening. Even I heard that you know, the pastor and the elders were already taken by the communists. And there is a lay people, and one of a few church deacons were there. And one by one, rationalize in order to serve the Lord we need to survive and they stepped on the one by one they act like they're spitting at the picture but this little girl teenage girl that maybe 12 13 years old girl girl when his her turn came he, she picked up the picture and she wiped it with her clothes with the tears lord jesus Forgive us. Lord Jesus, forgive us. And when I think about the picture, when I think about the story, what would I do at that moment? It's easy for me to say, I will be like that girl. When I think about my four sons, when I think about things that I could do, in, you know, rationalization is possible. But our faith is not real until we're pushed to the corner. Will I choose Jesus over anything? That is the ultimate question. Will you choose your pride over Jesus? Will you choose your family's comfort over Jesus? Will you choose something else, your career development over Jesus? Of course, we could rationalize every day and every aspect of our lives. And Jesus is asking today to us, will you stand with me? Will you stand stand up for me? Matthew 10, 32 to 33, he puts it this way. So everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in in, in heaven. But whoever denies me before man, I will also deny before before my Father who is in heaven. This is Lord Jesus speaking to us. From the Old Testament, how dangerous our, the fear of man is. Proverbs 14, 27, 29, 25 says this. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Okay, unless you are living in, in the middle of North Korea or China where Boy and Cindy experience this increasing hostility against Christian faith, we will not have this much of pressure. Do you see this? 
if you flip that fear of, the, fear of man the other way, is praise of man. Would you pray for me? Fear of man is not so much of my thing. But what people say and recognize and praise, because I need encouragement. I want to be a good preacher. I want to be a good pastor. And I, 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 I see myself being affected by men's evaluation when there is a praise. And even in a good way that people will say, you're man of God. You, you, you are faithful to the preaching of the word. Because men said that. People said that. The praise it becomes so important. Will I live before the Lord as if the eyes of the Lord is my single focus, the audience of one? Now you take it to your, your, your life. Do you serve because of recognition, because of people praise you? Or is it really okay? No one sees what you're doing. But there is true satisfaction that you are pleasing the Lord in the sight of the Lord. Which one turned you on? In the middle of my meditation, if I'm being honest with you, this is my constant struggle. And this is my brothers, pastor brothers, church planter brothers and sisters. Temptation, rationalization. And every day, well-meaning lay people The limelight. The enthusiastic praise. Today, we ought to make that clear stance at the fork of the road. As for me and my family. I don't care any other people what they do. We will serve the Lord. We will please the Lord. We will fear the Lord. That is true faith. And third and last, a root cause of unbelief is self-righteousness. The unbelief of the hostile Jewish authorities was rooted in their self-righteousness by their man-made legalistic standards. Verse 14. 
This is the part Jesus' teaching gets intensified. So we need to pay attention. Although the simple root cause is there. So let's try to pick up what Jesus is saying as well. Verse 14. About in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This is not self-study talking about, you know, going to rabbinic training under the rabbi's school, formal training. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, the God the Father. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Isn't that oxymoron here? So they are angry at Jesus. The rage is coming because of his, their absolute commitment to keep the law. And then Jesus, this is referring to, he's going to refer to the um, John 5 incident, healing the paralytic uh, on the Sabbath day. Let's go on. And verse 19 again. Has not Jesus given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Patriarchs, Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Every Jewish boy born on the eighth day, they circumcise, even if it's a Sabbath day. That's what Jesus is saying. Why, why are they doing that? If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is subtly hinting, none of you keep the law. Why are you so trying to kill me, then commandment, thou shalt not kill. The spirit of that law, the commandment, is very internal. What's coming out to the action is the anger. If you're angry against your brother, you have already murdered. Jesus' teaching was that. So they were basically committing crimes, sins against 
upholding Moses' Mosaic law all the time, even right that moment. They're blinded. Why are they blinded? Because what they are obsessed with was their self-righteousness, self-exaltation, as opposed to God's righteousness humbly received by grace and God's exaltation, what Jesus is saying. There are two things going on very contradicting to each other. And notice what Jesus and the Jewish authorities, why they feel so threatened and enraged because of their man-made standard. And they want to keep by that. Why? Because they want to uphold their self-righteousness. And notice why Jesus is confident and pure and free in his teaching. Because he is all about exaltation of the God the Father. When you look at the difference between the two, one is very, this is very insightful because even with the maybe initially good intention to I will serve the Lord, I will be a good Christian, the moment that you make that decision, if you are not watchful, you could be full of yourself. And then I, I think even the children, looking at, looking at televangelists, they're preaching God's word, they're, they're promoting kingdom work, but it looks like he, he's so full of himself. Talking about money all the time. Him getting rich and anointed by God. But true faith, as opposed to that kind of false pseudo-faith. There is a genuine God exaltation, is there? Not just a lip service, which requires our humbling, self-humbling. And this In this world, this, the subtlety of our self-righteousness, even within us, not just out there, can continue. Because of our default mode is grabbing on, hold on to ourself. I am going to be little better than others when it comes to following Christ. That starts with Somewhat good motive, but then yet it becomes, ah, I'm better than these people. The true sign of really following Christ, the closer, closer to you, to you get the holy God, the more you become realized how messed up you are, how sinful you are how depraved you are, 
And Apostle Paul's confession is not a form of just jargon that he throws out. I'm a, among the sinners, I'm a chief of sinners. I'm the worst kind of sinner. Sinner, Because he saw in the middle of the best work that he could do, he remembered how He persecuted church. He remembered his motive, how distorted that motive was. He was doing all that in the name of God. And even as continue on, that he lives with that seed of sin, the nature. I think this is one of the adult syndrome. But the purity of children is on this. The wisdom is that adults may not speak out clearly. Oh, I think you're full of yourself. You have all the right things. There's something not about you. It's not Jesus-like. The kids notice that right away. The truly meek person, humble person are approachable. Even by the kids. We could fool adults. And in, tr- in truth, in, in reality, even, even we might not say that out loud, but we know it. This person is faking, or this person is really genuine. Your friends. Will you commit this morning, today, to exalt God and absolutely get rid of? All rationalization of self-exaltation, self-righteousness. As the water flows from the highest point to its lowest, Andrew Murray say, so the moment God's grace finds you, Abased and low, his grace flowing. That, that, that is really true faith and true revival. Unless we are forgetful about this, uh, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Um, <clears throat> 
I remember this language, so I chose this. This is actually NIV. We, we generally use ESV because it's more literal translation and close to the text. But this one, I want us to hear in NIV. All of us become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy, filthy rags, dirty laundries. All we shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. I, I pray that this, this um, mobile church time, God's sovereign purpose is putting our church. I pray the wind of the Spirit will blow, blow, starting with me, that our heart self are broken. Not only by the heavy hand of God, but in our true faith and obedience. To break our stiff neck diet and surrender to that humility becomes a culture of our church. Oh, that's my prayer. I close with this um, quote from A.W. Tozer. He's famous for his book, Pursuit of God. And this sequel to Pursuit of God is a God who pursues men. That, that it's from, this quote is from that book. Tozer writes, The difficulty we modern Christians face is not misunderstanding the Bible, but persuading our untamed hearts to accept its plain instructions. Our problem is to get the consent of our world-loving minds to make Jesus Lord, in fact, as well as in word. For it is one thing to say, Lord, Lord, and quite another thing to obey the Lord's commandments. We may sing, crown him Lord of Lord." And rejoice in the tons of loud-sounding organ and the deep melody of harmonious voices. But still, we have done nothing until we have left the world and set our faces toward the city of God in hard, practical reality. When faith becomes obedience, then it is true faith indeed. May the Lord help us that we become congruent, more and more congruent. And what we confess about Jesus and how we live our life in this world, in our church, in our relationships, And in our families. May the Lord guide us. 
open our eyes, give spiritual vision to see what we need to see that we might choose genuine faith rather than shallow pseudo-faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your clear teaching, your word uh, that penetrates our heart. And we pray that you would make us real and true in our discipleship of you and in our daily practice of our faith. Would you help us to be real Christians with genuine faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.